Welcome to What's the Word Downtown, a weekly podcast dedicated to mining the depths of the word, a word that's sharp and active in downtown Tyler, Texas. Join Eric, Matt, and Mike as we get the word out at Bethel. Hey, welcome to What's the Word Downtown. I'm Matt. This is Pastor Eric Barton, and we're here to discuss last week's message, which was Genesis 15, the covenant God struck. Do you strike a covenant? He cut a covenant. Cut a covenant. With Abram. Yeah. This uh, revealing increasingly of God and his redemptive plan, how he chooses those who are otherwise, as far as we're concerned, unchoosable, mm-hmm. unworthy of choice and selection. God makes a promise to Abram in chapter 12, the promise of land, offspring, and blessing. A lot of time goes by, Abram goes on some adventures in chapters 13 and 14. He defeats all these kings, rescues Lot, who's been living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Not a good real estate choice, by the by. And then God comes to him and cuts covenant because you get the sense that Genesis 15 is this wonderful, marvelous passage of the demonstration of faith in a lot of ways. And really, it's not about Abram. It's a story about the faithfulness of God. But is this the second time that God has, I mean, God has already told Abram, hey, get up and get out of where you are. So they've had some interactions. They have. Abram is, he knows God and God speaks to him. Right. And it has been proven that however, you know, the mixture of faith and faithlessness, in some ways he did obey God. He did leave where he was, and he has kind of walked into some measure of success uh, with plenty coming his way. And then he going down and rescuing Lot. I mean, that's a military military success. And the God has been showing his faithfulness to Abram. This is a developing thing. But now there's a new... It's a new precipice. It's a new something. Yeah, it's as you move further down unveiling the funnel of mm-hmm. specificity mm-hmm. and precision. God's given a promise in chapter twelve. Here in fifteen, we're going to see God cut covenant. Mm-hmm. Later in chapter seventeen, that's next week. Watch out. We'll see God tighten it even more precisely with an oath. Mm-hmm. So promise, covenant, oath. Here in fifteen, we've got God saying, Abram, you've sort of fallen forward in a lot of ways and a lot of things. I've blessed you despite your unworthiness of blessing, which is the gospel, incidentally. Mm -hmm. Abram has prospered immensely. In chapters 13 and 14, we see his nephew Lot and Abram, they both have so much stuff and abundance and prosperity that they have to part ways. Lot looks at the land and says, that's where I, in the strength of my right hand, can flourish. Now, just, just, just for specificity's sake, they have so much that they have to part ways. Is there not also a sense of, we have so much, we need to make sure that we continue to steward it well. Too close together, not possible. I mean, is there, is there, a, is there I'm not saying an empire, but is there a sense of, hey, we need to spread out and cover. You take that, you bring that into submission. I'll bring this land into submission. I mean, was that, there was there a sense of, I think, or was it just like, hey, there's a problem. There's too much stuff. We need more space. Yeah. I think Abram might've been thinking in those noble terms, mm-hmm. Lot was certainly not. Oh. I think Abram has the idea that, you know, God's already told him, start walking. This is the breadth of the land. You're going to take it. But I think at first the text tells us pretty clearly that in chapters 13 and 14, the the herdsmen, all of the servants and the workers and the the people that they had brought to themselves, they begin bickering and fighting. And you get the sense it's kind of violent. 
And so just for the sake of peace, they have to go their separate ways. Now we're not talking about moving, you know, a thousand miles away. Lot goes to the east, the Jordan Valley that he says reminds him of Egypt because as the Nile River Valley, that's where all the fertile land is. And so Lot says, okay, Dibs, I call shotgun. He thinks. He thinks. He thinks by choosing he can get God's blessing perhaps or well, some sort of. He's going to go ahead and reap the reward right. of the present blessing that is the Jordan River. And Abram says, I'll just go wherever God. I mean, he's standing in the Negev desert at that point. And he says, I'll go where God is and leads me. So he goes back up north between Bethel and Ai. And God continues to bless him. Remarkably, Lot, on the other hand, continues to drift closer and closer and closer to the cities. And really, it's got nothing to do with the fertility of the soil. Lot is drawn to human strength and the prosperity and the bounty of man, which it turns out to be really bad for him. So I know that this is a story of Israel's history, according to not according to Moses, but inspired yeah. by or inspired by God through Moses. Is he trying to set up some, one of these? What's it called? It's not a dichotomy, but is there a sense of like here's here you have a what was those a highlight magazine that we always talk about? <laughs> oh, yeah. Goofus and Gallant. I mean, is there a sense here that Moses is is Moses trying to instruct the people in some way? Say like. Don't follow Lot, who saw the thing before him and said, ah, that's it, dibs. That will surely bring me blessing. Right. Instead, follow God, who calls things that are not as though they were. Correct. And leads into his faithfulness, regardless of what your eyes perceive. Yes, because in a sense, Israel, the children of Israel, mm -hmm. they are Abraham. He's the embodiment. He's the personification. He's the microcosm mm -hmm. of who they are in their experience. Abram went down to Egypt and was a curse to those people and comes out of Egypt. Israel goes down to Egypt and they are a curse to those people. The plagues come the same way it happens to Abram. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, you've got Moses setting up this picture of Abram did these things and he was faithful and then he was faithless and then he fell and then he failed so too have you so god is still faithful now we have to remember moses is writing this for a purpose to a people at a place at a time at a period we might say and so in the beginning god and when he says in the beginning god he's writing this and it's like you got the sense that there's all the children of Israel that are gathered around or that he's reading these things through, saying these things to. And he says, in the beginning, God. He didn't have to, like, defend the existence of God. I mean, he's literally physically manifesting mm -hmm. right there. Mm -hmm. And in the day, there's a pillar of cloud that would cover them. Wow. At night, there's a pillar of fire. There's no argument at the existence of God. We have a struggle with that because we don't have our senses are not discerning the presence of God. They didn't have that struggle. He was right there. And so he says, in the beginning, God. And this is what he is like. And as they're looking at this massive, awesome side of this pillar of fire, this pillar of cloud, he's faithful. He's good. Abram falls forward again and again, but God is faithful. This God that I'm pointing to over here, he's right over there. He can hear me right now. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. he's telling the children of Israel, you have fallen forward. Look what happened. You're exactly right. To Lot, don't take that path. You might be tempted to stay in Jericho. No, we're going to take the land because God's faithful. He's going to get it done. Mm -hmm. And so we see this again, not as Abram is our hero. He's not our hero. God is our God. 
way better than a hero. Lot's certainly not our hero. Lot's, <laughs> Lot's life is a train wreck, and yet even Lot shows up in Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith, which is insane. You got a guy like Lot, you got a guy like Samson. But, but who's distributing the faith? It's God. Exactly. He's slinging it out to these. That's the point. Man, you did a great thing where you said, hey, here's the pattern of Scripture over and over and over again. There is God. There is people. There is sin. There is judgment. There is Savior. Every single book of the Old Testament, every single You find yourself notion. somewhere within that pattern. Absolutely. Every one of the prophets... You get into the New Testament teachings and they will refer back to it and say, oh, there's God, there's people, there's sin, there's judgment, there's Savior. That five-pronged cycle that just repeats over and over again. And every time it does, God ratchets down and he, he nuances the, the age to say, okay, we're going to put this in place. Still are not able to break the sin cycle. Okay, we're going to put this in place. You're still not able to break the sin cycle until finally he sends the Son. And that's the breaking of the sin cycle. And so in our age, we still struggle with sin, but we are in Christ and dwelled by the Spirit. And it's never been like that before. Abram doesn't get that. But Moses does in so much as he knows that God is there, right? Yeah, and, right. and God has made himself known to the Israelites, both by bringing them through Egypt, out of Egypt into the wilderness, then preserving them through mm -hmm. the manna, through, through the snake bite, through all of, all of this. Uh, but there's a sense that what is, well, not a sense. I mean, God is with Moses and Jesus is, we are, God is with us in Jesus. Right. Uh, when we read these scriptures, no matter what, what, what part of the pattern we're in, we are with Jesus. Mm -hmm. In Christ, indwelled by his spirit, and the son is in the father. Uh, it, it's this insane scandal of grace that we are invited into the very, community of the Godhead yet not being God. Like that should not be real, but it's well, real. And we're we're invited into this it's a predicament of sorts. Yeah. In so much as uh sinners collected together to remember and remind one another mm -hmm. <laughs> of God's abiding grace, even as along the way we perpetually disappoint one another. And show one another our lesser selves, and and encourage one another, and show one another our holy the Holy Spirit. But it's a it is a mixture. That's a great point, and it's important even for Genesis fifteen. We have the covenant community to admonish, to encourage, to energize, to exhort all of these things. Abram's it. In his day, there's nobody else to remind him of the goodness of God. There's nobody. It's certainly not going to be Lot. And so Abram is 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, is 65, 66. When they get called out of Ur, they move to Haran. They come into the land of Canaan. Ten years go by, and there's no covenant community to remind Abram of what is true. He has to rely on his memory, knowledge, and experience of God. There's no scripture for Abram. He's just got to rely on his conversation, his experience with God. And so ten years goes by. Yes, Abram and Lot separate. Then Abram goes and fights these kings to rescue Lot, who's been taken captive by Curtilaomer and these four kings that defeated the five in this wonderful story. It's like 318 men go to Damascus, comes back, encounters Melchizedek. That Hebrews says Melchizedek 
was in the order of, or was in the pattern of the Son of God. You expect it to be that the Son of God, Jesus, is in the pattern of Melchizedek, but Hebrews says, no, Melchizedek was in the pattern of the Son of God, mm -hmm. who predates Melchizedek, which sure. is hard to understand until we get to chapter 15. So 10 years have gone by since Abram receives the call of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. Leave Ur, leave Haran, come to Canaan. 10 years goes by. And Abram at this point is going, man, it's been 10 years. That was cool and all. But I think Abram enters into, candidly, depression. What we would call it in our day and age. Back then, it was just how life went. This excellent, pinnacle, mountaintop experience. And then I think he goes into a bit of a discouraged depression. God promised, but I hadn't seen God in 10 years. And so God comes to him in Genesis 15. One to six, we get this sort of re-articulation of the promise. Genesis 15, six, perhaps the most central passage, that one verse of the entire Old Testament. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Yes. Abram believes God, believes in and believes God. And so we'll talk about this hopefully with the rest of this sermon series in the book of Genesis, but what does belief actually look like? Well, it looks like Abram in a lot of ways. There's error and there's fragility and fallenness, but he follows. There's action, there's flow, there's, there's movement, action there's compulsion. That comes, there's action that comes from an understanding. That God, I believe. And so Abram acts and God astonishingly credits, imputes, fills his account with righteousness, which is the currency of the kingdom. Saul of Tarsus, Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, trains at the foot of Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi in all of Israel, knows Genesis 15, 6, and it never clicked because the Spirit of God had not illumined that to Saul of Tarsus until his name is changed to Paul. We're going to see Abram's name changed later. But later, when Paul, the apostle, comes to terms with Genesis 15, 6, he literally writes the book of Romans as an exposition of Genesis 15, 6 to explain that faith is the engine that, and not our faith, it's the faith given to us that is, produces righteousness. That's what that's, unlocks that door. He writes Galatians largely to say faith comes by, or righteousness comes by faith. The apostle James will talk about it. The writer of Hebrews talks about it. Just, just to, but just to say... To be clear, righteousness comes by faith that is a gift from God. And though it produces flow, action, movement, obedience, all of those things, it's actually the faith and the righteousness of another that is given, that is laid on us. Right. And I think that's incredibly important because it was not Abraham's acting. Abraham's deeds, Abraham's rescuing Lot, Abraham's, you know, all the things that he did, were, was, that was not what was credited to him as righteousness. It was his faith. Now, it did. What did he say? Like faith, uh, uh, what's the, it's not faith. Uh, deeds won't save you, but no one's ever been saved by fruitless faith. Faith, you know, or fruit won't save you. Right. Fruit won't save you, but no one's ever been saved by fruitless faith. There is fruit to Abraham's faith, but fruit is not what saved Abraham. Right. The Bible has no notion nor concept of fruitless faith. Well, the epistle of James, the half-brother of Jesus, his whole thrust is, 
faith works. But we don't work for faith. We have faith and it manifests. It produces. It outworks. Faith works. So we see this. Abram didn't make a decision to follow God. God comes to him in Ur and says, walk, to which Abram gets up and walks. So is there a decision? Well, he stops rejecting or he doesn't reject. That is, in a sense, a decision, but it's not, I have a neutral playing field. I just choose God. Abram was a pagan, idolatrous moon worshiper. God says, I'm calling you, and Abram responds. So it's a gift, yes. And so let me ask you, this is, as Moses describes, is Abraham, Abram, we know that his, that his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And what did he have faith in? Now, I only, only ask that to say he had faith in this very simple, not simple, astounding, no doubt moving uh, realization of God's presence with right. him. But he did not understand the Trinity. He no. did not know of Christ's coming salvific work. No. All of that. So is there a sense here as when we go back and look at this that like, does it boil down our faith to, uh, can we have Abrahamic like faith. I think a lot of us in the sort of a quasi reformed tradition, it's like we think somehow we've got to learn, we've got to educate, we've got but this but the simple faith of God exists and he will speak to me if I will listen. Yes. Is there an evolution of, of okay. Progression. And that's yeah, better word. Well, progression. Uh, evolution is actually a correct word as well. It's just it's yeah. got a connotation associated but with it. But it's a progr- it's a progressive uh unfurling of God's presence in a, an increasingly specific way until he becomes like us in such a way that we can understand him. Correct. There's a singularity, or you can say simplicity, that's an okay term, to our faith. We believe God, we believe in God, we believe what he says. That's faith. Singularly, that's it. it that's our faith. And we have that, and that is credited to us as righteousness. As righteousness. And then 500 years after Abram comes Moses. And Moses knows more and understands more than Mm -hmm. Abram. And that's good. That's okay. Mm -hmm. And then mm, 500 years after Moses comes David. And David understands more than Moses. And that's okay. There's a progression. There's an uh, unveiling. There's an evolving of revelation and therefore of doctrine and theology and knowledge. thousand years after David comes Jesus. Then come the apostles, then comes Augustine, then comes Aquinas, and then come the Scholastics, and then comes C.S. Lewis, and then finally here comes Matt McGill. Hey! There it is. And so there's this progression of understanding, and that's good, but it still comes from that kernel of faith that is, there is God, he is good, he loves me, he sees me, he knows me. And that's what Abram has. This is the God who knows me, sees me, loves me, calls me. And God's going to continue to reveal himself, even to Abram, and then more progressively to Moses. And he does so in this chapter, Genesis 15, in such a stark, shocking way that he says, Abram, I want to remind you, I'm doing this. And you get the sense that Abram says, look, look, I don't doubt you, but I doubt my circumstances. Mm -hmm. I know that you can. I don't know that you will. Or if you will, I cannot for the life of me figure out or fathom how or when or with whom or in what way. And so we got the wonderful story where God puts 
Abram in a death-like trance, asleep, of an immobilizing paralysis sort of context. The same thing, the same words we have with Adam. When Adam is put to sleep in some way, it's a dark, dreadful, heavy darkness. And Abram is immobilized while God does a thing. And so that's a great story. By the way, it's what happens to Joseph when he, resol he resolves to divorce quietly Mary. That's exactly he right. He goes into a dream. Then the wise men who are told in a dream don't go by way of Herod. Right. I mean, God oftentimes speaks to us if we will just, what would my grandmother always say? Be still. Be still. Be still. I mean, and sometimes I, we won't. And so God says, <laughs> be, be still. still. I will pin you down. Yeah, the heavy hand of God. I mean, Jeremiah talks about that. I will, I will immobilize you. So that all you can do is watch and, and listen. receive. And receive. Right. As my dad would say, never miss an opportunity to shut, shut up. up. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That's what Stephanie Mazinga would call a yellow word. But we say it in this context. Mm -hmm. And so he cuts these animals in half, which is a strange thing for us. It's covenant. It's contract. Uh, um, arranges them to make a lane. But here's why this imagery is so marvelous. Moses is writing this to the children of Israel, explaining who God is. And there's fire and smoke. Like, there's God right there, and Moses writes of Abram's experience of that God, even more localized, walking through the pieces saying, Abram, I know you're afraid of holding up your end of the, of the contract, of the covenant, of the bargain, which is to walk before him and be blameless. Yeah. We'll see that in chapter 17. And so God says, I'm going to walk through for both of us. It's not that Abram has no responsibility He's just that he's not responsible. God says, I will walk through for the both of us. And so when he's you, he, he has the ability to respond, but he's not culpable when his ability swerves or errs. Or, I mean, he, he's being tasked with obedience. Right. But his inability to fulfill that perfectly is covered by God. Correct. Right. And so I think Moses wants them to understand and by extension, us to understand this is the kind of God that he is. And you know what I really love, and this is what this, this series is bringing home to me, is Moses understands God not just because of Mount Sinai. Right. Not just because of receiving the Ten Commandments, but also because he killed a man. Right. And he was forgiven. And even though he was a murderer, God got his mind right. Right. Stopped him. And then, and then mobilized him to, to live into this essentially salvific role where I, you are going to lead my people. You are going to save my people as I bring them through this and, and into the wilderness, which doesn't look like saving. But here Moses, through this uh, epinosis, this experiential knowledge mm -hmm. of having to take, take on the head, a headship of sorts of a people, he is able to receive illumination about Abraham having done the same thing so far back. Right. And this is exactly what Paul learns right. to then reinterpret the life of Jesus. And it's like, because he is the alpha and the omega, uh, you know, at each successive progressive step of revelation, you look back and the fullness of God's perfect plan is absolutely articulated by those to come. Correct. Yeah, and I think Moses, as he ponders Abram, and as he speaks to God in the tent of meeting like a friend talks to a friend, I think very likely 
Yahweh God, which would have been most certainly, I think, a pre-incarnate Christ revealing to him all of these things. Moses is the guy who spends 40 years in Egypt being educated as the heir apparent, as like a prime minister in the seminary, if you will, of Luxor. 30 or 40 years. And then he goes and spends 40 years in the uh, wilderness of Midian because he's killed a guy. And so that 40 years, that's a lot of time passing. Moses understands what it is to have time pass and not have heard from God. For 40 years, Moses is just being Moses out in the wilderness with sheep. And then God calls him to go down and he does the thing. Having been a murderer, having been a four-decade wanderer, presumably in silence where he doesn't really even know who God is. And so God has to introduce himself. I am the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses trembles at the thought of this God being associated with these primitive, particular people. So he writes this to the Israelites to say, this is your God. He is, what is the old expression? Uh, he is the God who makes the sun stand still. Joshua 10, he is the God who makes the iron axe head float. Now that's the way we are to think of our God. He is cosmic and grand and great, but he's also precisely involved in little things like floating axe heads. Mm -hmm. This is our God. Mm. And I think Moses is trying to not use those scriptures because they haven't happened yet, but that sort of, he's great and grand, but he's also intimately involved. Yes, his eminence and his Transcendence, precisely. And those being held in balance by Abraham, by Moses, and those to come until he becomes absolutely eminent, flesh and blood. Right. The Logos becomes flesh and dwells among us. The one that Abram sees take form and move with volitionality through those pieces you said a flesh. theophany, mm -hmm. not a Christophany. What is yes. it? It's the same thing. Is Christophany a well? Is, it, is that a wrong? Is that is that a a Christophany would have been a, a non-term mm. in <laughs> in that day because there is no Mashiach right. or, or Christ yet as yet written of. We don't see Messiah written of until Psalm two in mm. Davidic Psalm that is preparatory for Messiah. So it's a theophany. It's a presence of God which would have been the sendable self of God, that would have been Jesus, Christ. But there's no Messiah as yet unveiled or revealed in Scripture. There's the, the foretelling of the, the, the faint flickers of the gospel from Genesis 2 and 3, mm -hmm. but we don't know about a Messiah yet. We just know that God will send someone to crush the head of the serpent. So what are we learning here? What are we learning about? I loved, again, your five-prong sort of meta-narrative that encapsulates every story, no matter what you're looking at. At some point, you're in, you're, in one you're in one area or season of understanding these things. Here, we're looking at, at Abraham. We're seeing the covenant that, that God cuts with him, his, uh, his participation in the part of Abraham's life that Abra Abram would actually rather God stay away from, his right. weakness, his yeah. failure, his, in his uncertainty, his inability perhaps to, care to, to, stand, uh, to stand up and, and walk uh, 
as God calls him, at least at least in a completely undefiled or completely righteous way. He's he's kind of cognizant of that. That's where we that's where we find ourselves many times in the yeah. church. Uh, the point, on the one hand, it's deeply abstract and theological. God is faithful. He gets it done. He cannot not get it done. To not make good on his promise would be tantamount to ungodding God, and that can't happen. But candidly, most of the folks that show up here and occupy our brown chairs, that is abstract. Why it's pertinent and practical to them is because it's some of the greatest psychotherapy yeah. in existence. What this gives us is proper perspective. Part of the madness and the cognitive dissonance of everyday life in the 21st century is a warping and a twisting of perspective because there's all these bombarding notions and ideas that sort of dent and tarnish my perspective. And I think, well, life is all about getting that little blue thumb in social media, or life is all about not having pain, or life is all about this. But a passage like this gives us proper perspective that actually gives us peace. That's the key to peace, is proper perspective. Mm. And when we see that God is faithful, he's already finished our story for us, in a sense. We can walk blameless. In other words, live like it's true. Live and behave like who God says you are. You don't have to strive. You don't have to grasp. Live like who God says you are. And when, not if, not when, but when you fall forward, it's okay. He's already paid that consequence. And he's prepared to catch you and hold you and bear up. Absolutely. And we get to have the life that doesn't just move forward but we also get to be that life, like he talks about oaks of righteousness, the teaching centers of the character and the ethos and the ethic of God because of who we are moving forward in him. So proper perspective gives us peace. Fantastic. Genesis 17, this Sunday morning, do not miss it. Nope. God Have bless. Bye now.